Hello, welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum, and welcome to our live show. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives and our world. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This episode is part of our live podcast episode series. Every month, members of the Design Museum get a chance to enjoy a live show and ask their questions of the guests. So check out designmuseumeverywhere.org to see more details, become a member, and you get access to our live shows. You can be part of the conversation. Today, we're learning about launching a startup and how to design startups for success. I'm joined by our guest co-host, Sarah Hartman, an educator and arts entrepreneurship change agent. And joining us a bit later is our special guest, Steve Hoffman, the CEO of Founderspace. Steve recently wrote the book, Surviving a Startup, Practical Strategies for Starting a Business, Overcoming Obstacles and Coming Out on Top. Before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. Check out our We Design Exhibition conversation cards. These incredibly well-designed cards bring our We Design Exhibition to your home. Right to you. We Design is an exhibition that we put together that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries, and it includes statistics and topics of discussion around diversity and equity in design. The deck can be used alone or with friends. Hey, you can even use it over Zoom. Why not? And it's available to order now on designmuseumeverywhere.org. With that, onto this week's show. Over 90% of new startups fail. Being an entrepreneur myself and going through the trials and tribulations of entrepreneurship, I totally understand that statistic. I started Design Museum 12 years ago, and yes, what a journey. Some of the most successful startups were actually founded by designers. So think about Airbnb, Pinterest, Etsy, Kickstarter. So how can a startup be designed for success to learn more, we have Sarah Hartman joining as our guest co-host. As faculty at Massachusetts College of Art and Design, Sarah founded the Creative Economy Business Incubator, a scale agnostic program designed to support the needs of art, design, and cultural ventures. She also produces MassArt's Creative Economy Workshop Series in partnership with the City of Boston. This popular series offers free business skill training and professional development for artists and designers. She's also taught business and design at UMass Dartmouth, Simmons, Mount Ida College, and LaSalle College. Prior to academia, Sarah worked as a costume designer for theater and opera and as a digital marketer for apparel and consumer product startups. Sarah's designs move between the cultural and innovation economies. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Yeah, you're doing a lot around entrepreneurship, so I'm so excited to chat. And you actually had me speak at one of your entrepreneurship classes, which was a lot of fun. So thank you for that. I did. And I have to tell you, um, you know, now we just wrapped our first cohort um, earlier this month. And I think you were one of the most quoted and cited guest speakers that we had this year. And we had over the course of the program, close to 100 visiting professionals. That makes me very happy. Yep. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah. As I said, I've been, I've been living the entrepreneurial life for 12 years for sure. So definitely right here in the trenches with with you all. So let's get into it. Uh, as I mentioned, you worked as a costume designer. Can you walk us through sort of like how you're combining like your background as a designer and now into this sort of like startup world? Like how did that all come about? 
So I think it's more organic than it sounds because, you know, artists, designers, entrepreneurs were all people who create something from nothing. And I think that in general, artists and designers are more entrepreneurial than they get credit for. So, you know, Massachusetts College of Art and Design, where I work, we did this massive survey of alumni going back 10 years. And one of the things that we found was our alums, or at least those who responded, were self-employed or running businesses at four times the rate of the average working population. So, you know, even in my early days, right out of art school, working as a costume designer, you know, you're not as a designer, very often on a path where you get a job, you're on a salary, you're there full time. It's, you know, so you're really an independent contractor building your client base, building your project base. You know, in the early days, I was in New York, I was working on Broadway costumes, uh, working on film sets, and then, you know, picking up design gigs and designing shows outside the city as well. And I think the big leap for me came when I hit a point. I think a lot of creatives feel this, where when you're in art school, they present you with this challenge that you started with the statistic, you know, 90% of startups fail. And people, or at least in the 90s, when I chose to go to art school, love to hang this threat over your head that only a third of you will ever work in your field. So that became the challenge, just to have gainful employment using your degree. And, you know, what I found a few years in was that even though I had jobs that on paper I should have been really excited to have and that I had made it, I wasn't challenged and I wasn't inspired every day. That I was almost you know, using my hands but not using my brain. Cut to uh, long story short. I know, Sam, you can relate to the similar paths. I wound up in business school studying entrepreneurship and business school and art school are so much alike once you get past the practice um, to the mindset and the theories. And, you know, I came in thinking I would be an underdog. I'm going to school with people who are engineers or who studied businesses in undergrad. And I think having that artist and designer's mindset of taking a whole lot of vast inputs into account, being comfortable with uncertainty and creating something that didn't exist before, it was the perfect preparation. After business school, I wound up, I had a business for several years, but also worked in and around a number of art startups. One of the reasons for that is you know, a lot of them don't last, you know, to your point. Uh, so I spent a while as the director of marketing for a doomed menswear startup, but then also doing consulting and contract work for a number of retail ventures, uh, fashion-related ventures, sort of art and craft. So, you know, working on smaller and project bases, helping a lot of creative entrepreneurs try to grow their business, get off the ground, or get to a level where their cash flows are stabilized. So whatever that next level looked like, I was trying to help people get there. The interesting thing with costume design is like sort of drawing more connection between like previous work in theater and working in startup environments. It's both big personalities, chaotic timeframes to get large projects done and big changes in what you're working on from day to day. Totally connects to what it's like to be an entrepreneur for sure. And yeah, and I had an interesting sort of unique advantage working in the field in that I understood both sort of the business and marketing side, but also what it took to make apparel, so which is how I wound up working with fashion startups that... You spoke that language, you knew that background. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think understood some of the inherent contradictions where um, the realities of getting clothing made were going to run into or bulldoze the dreams maybe of designers or funders who didn't understand some of the practical sides of the industry. 
Yeah, no, thank you for that. A lot of teas out there, but I wanted to make that that point about business school because I did have that same experience where I had a lot of fear of like, should I do this? I'm a designer. I don't know business. I don't use spreadsheets. And I had that same mentality like, oh, I'm going to be an underdog and just be like constantly trying to catch up. But I didn't have that experience at all. In fact, having that design background really set me up well. And so any listeners who are designers who are thinking about business school, I, th I think it's a great move if you can do it. There's also a lot of other business opportunities in terms of education online. It's super valuable to combine design and business. But I wanted to ask, the first thing you mentioned, designers make something from nothing and sort of creates this like natural entrepreneur. Do you think designers have an edge when it comes to starting new ventures? Yes and no at the same time. <laughs> I think that to some degree they do, right? If you really understand what it is that you're trying to create, you have an advantage over someone who's maybe who understands the white space and has an idea for an opportunity but can't execute. But on the other end, and I don't know, we didn't go to the same art school, so I don't know if this was your experience, but I think that art and design schools can also produce designers who still have that fine arts mindset. And I think I see both alumni that I work with, students that I work with, founders that I've worked with over the years run into a wall where they can't shift out of the mindset of I'm creating because I've got something I need to express and switch over to I'm creating with the end user and their needs in mind. And I think where designers run into trouble is they're trying to retrofit a business model and an audience around a vision that's really more about their self-expression than any sort of provable or measurable demand. Let's dive into the Creative Economy Business Incubator because it just seems like a great program. So how did it come about? What's it like? Paint a picture for us as someone who's going to you know, participate in that incubator. Absolutely. So the incubator, the way it came about, and I know I just I'm going to contradict myself a bit because I just talked about how at home I felt as an artist in business school, but um, I didn't feel at home at all in the sort of innovation ecosystem that existed, at least in the Boston area after business school. So I should preface this that you know, I'm passionate about the creative economy and all of the businesses that get me really excited have limited scale potential. And in Boston, we've got this really incredible scene if you're building a very particular type of business. And between having maybe an MBA network of friends who are founding more conventional startups and then being in that weird blanket term space of women in entrepreneurship, I kept getting invited to things really to be a token woman, I didn't fit in any other way. Or people would talk about gender as a barrier to entrepreneurship. And I would say, well, you know, the industry that I'm in is a barrier long before gender ever comes into question. You know, I saw this real discrepancy between the community and resources that were available to founders with a scalable idea in the innovation space and this really large but completely disconnected and disjointed community that was out there of founders in the creative economy and cultural ventures in art and design who didn't have access to all of these resources that were, in theory, right there in their community. So the idea with the creative economy business incubator wasn't just to create a program at a college. And I should put a plug in here. Um, MassArt is a very unique institution in that we are the nation's only publicly funded independent college of art and design. So as a public institution, I think we have a responsibility not just to our students, but to the broader commonwealth to help create infrastructure to build 
creative ventures and that is designed for their unique needs. So one example is in the innovation economy, there's so much focus around getting funding. uh, And we tend to look at new ventures in terms of what they've raised. And this race for venture capital is almost never a factor for art and design businesses. It's they tend to be self-funded and to learn through trial and error, which, you know, is great. And I think that's a great way to start. But, um, you know, there are also equity issues there, right? Self-funding looks very different, but depending on who you are. And one thing that we see, especially as a public school, is that students, you know, our alums may have limited resources to put into their businesses. And if they're hitting common roadblocks, they may just through learning through trial and error, it's very frequent or very possible for these really brilliant young artists and designers to run out of runway and to run out of energy before they hit on that winning formula. And sort of the underlying idea of this was, you know, looking at hitting a point of sustainable positive cash flow as the defining success event of a venture rather than raising a first round of capital. So get them fiscally sustainable as fast as possible. Everything in the program is designed to either mitigate risk at key moments, uh, provide in-kind support, or um, provide sales platforms and connections to help them grow their audience faster than they might be able to do on their own. Just finished our first cohort, and uh, it's been absolutely incredible so far. uh, And I should say, like, we finished our first cohort, it was seven years in the making, so. Wow. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your perspective and advice. I I love it. Listeners, to learn more about Sarah's work and everything that's going on at a really great place called MassArt, check out massart.edu. And Sarah, stay with us and we'll bring Steve Hoffman into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back. Sarah and I are joined by Steve Hoffman, or Captain Hoff, as he's called in Silicon Valley. Steve is the CEO of Founderspace, one of the world's leading startup accelerators. He's a venture investor, serial entrepreneur, and author of several award-winning books, including his most recent book, Surviving a Startup. And sometimes it does feel like we are just surviving. Steve has trained hundreds of startup founders and corporate executives in the art of innovation and provided consulting to many of the world's largest corporations, including Bosch, Intel, Disney, Warner Brothers, NBC, Golf, and Viacom. Steve designed successful startups for the creative entrepreneur. Steve, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Sam. So nice to have you. I got to tell you, when I saw your book, I haven't read it yet, but the table of contents was so comprehensive. I was like, this is it. This is the Bible. (laughs) 
I crammed everything in there. 20 years of experience. I love it. So I want to learn about the book. But first, can you tell us about Founder Space? And similar to Sarah, can you kind of give us, paint us a picture of what it's like in that startup accelerator? It is pretty amazing. So the reason I did Founder Space is I had completed three venture-funded startups and two bootstrap startups. I am actually, my background is not just in finance and engineering, but I have been a designer. So I designed in my early, I started as an entrepreneur designing games because I was really passionate about games and I wanted to create my own from scratch. I did that. I launched a series of them. They became successful. And then by default, I became an entrepreneur. Um, unlike you guys, I actually never went to business school. I actually learned by doing. The school of hard knocks. It was the hard knocks, right? So I had, I had really good products and a lot of it was chalked up to their design. And then I also had failures that just didn't resonate and didn't take off, which I'm sure every designer knows about. Now, in founder space, I draw from a lot of my personal experience, as well as working with hundreds of entrepreneurs around the world. So we have over 50 partners now in 22 countries. We collaborate with universities. We collaborate with other startup incubators and with governments. In China, we actually have incubators, our founder space incubators in a lot of the major cities like Hangzhou and Shenzhen, Xi'an, Nanjing. So I am always traveling. And I really love working with entrepreneurs. I'm passionate about it. And I'm also passionate about design. Uh, because it's in my background and in my blood, I can't help it. But every time I look at an entrepreneur's product, I'm, not, I'm looking also at the design, right? right? <laughs> and I tell you, if it's terribly ugly, if, it's, if, the user, if the user interface doesn't work, if it's you know, clunky, I will tell them right away. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand this, especially those who come from an engineering background, just how important good design is in the world. They're thinking features, they're thinking functionality, and I'm telling them the biggest feature you can have in any product is the design. Do users love your product, right? If they love it, they don't care about all the other features that you may add. Um, you can win based on almost design alone in today's world of apps where the distribution mechanism is instant. Like you can reach the entire world if you have a great product. Do you see that with the kind of levels of success for startups, whether they, if they have a designer on the team or are focused on design, like is there a sort of like, if you have design, you're, you're going... And if you don't, it's a little bit more of a struggle or is that too simplistic? So I tell every founding team that there are three essential people you need in your team. At the beginning, at the very beginning, you must have these people. Um, and I tend to focus on technology startups because that's what we fund. We're venture capital and we move in there. The three people you need is number one, you need a great leader and salesperson, like to carry your vision all the way. You need somebody on, that can do that. Number two, you need a technologist to really open up opportunities that weren't there before using technology. And number three, 
you need a designer. If you cannot design a great product, it doesn't matter if your technology is great. It doesn't matter if, I mean, being a great salesperson helps, but at the end, you will, somebody else will come out with a better, more beautiful product and you will get slaughtered at that point because everybody will switch. So those three, you don't need a marketing person at the beginning because you don't even have a budget for marketing. So So what are they going to do? You're bootstrapping it. And you know, I bootstrap companies, so I know, like I've done this before. So those, if you get those, that talent pool at the beginning, you're in pretty good shape. So it's not all about the money. And at the beginning, you have no money. So of course, it's like only, you know, for most of these entrepreneurs, like Sarah was saying, even though we're tech focused and we want big scalable businesses, you know, at the beginning, these people have to, you know, scrimp and save and borrow and do whatever they can uh, to get their startup to the next level. And uh, they have to go a long way on their sweat equity. So those people and their talents are so important. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. So, you know, you're working with a lot of startups, you've done them yourselves. What are the common pitfalls or, you know, like we said, 90% fail, like why? I mean, it's probably a very complex question, but be curious to share with our listeners, like what are the things that are tripping people up in this? Well, the, the first mistake most entrepreneurs make is a lot of them, they want to do it themselves. They're solopreneurs. And I always tell them, you never build a business almost never all by yourself. You like, even if it's a small business, you need some other people around you, let alone if it's going to be the next Google or, you know, Twitter or whatever it is, then you need lots of people. So I tell them, just forget about your idea at the beginning, because a lot of them tend to obsess thinking that that idea is going to make me, you know, that I have to have the right idea or I can't even start. And if I have the right idea, everything will fall in place. Well, it never works that way. You can have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have a good team to execute on it, you will just fumble the ball. It, you know, you won't get out of the gate with that idea. Somebody else will, because those ideas are out there. Other people will have those ideas and they're going to beat you. So I tell people at the very beginning, spend 80% of your time focused on finding the right people on your team who kind of share a similar vision and don't even lock down an idea. Like don't pick an idea, like pick a direction you want to head. Like we're all really interested in this thing. So if you pick an idea and you say, I have the great insight, it's probably wrong. In most cases, it's it, or if it's it's at least partially wrong because you just don't have enough data. You haven't put it out into the real world. It's just in your head. So I tell people, pick an area you're passionate about, find people that are passionate about that, that have the complementary skills. And together, you can start to figure out what your business really is. That is the beginning. And, and then you know, as early as possible, before you spend a lot of time designing a lot, building a lot, you know, definitely before you go out and raise money, bring it to the people who are going to use it. Try to get something in their hands that they can start to fiddle with and then listen to them, like get their feedback and start to iterate. And that design process, you know, the design thinking process is so critical to all uh, product development, doesn't matter what you're developing, whether it's a new clothing line, whether it's an advanced piece of software, whether it's some new uh, medical device, doesn't matter. Uh, using this approach tends to work. I'm wondering when you see there's that almost magical thinking some founders have that you're with the idea that if I get the piece that I'm excited about perfect enough, everything will fall into place. Are there things that you've seen that help break people out of that in combating that magical thinking of you know doubling down on the part that feels comfortable and exciting to you and dealing with all of the uncomfortable less clear pieces how do you force people out of that mindset 
So it's really hard because I will meet entrepreneurs who have literally worked on their products for years. Years, right? They've invested in this. Uh, they're, a lot of times, they're definitely their emotions, their life savings. Um, but I, I tell them a story. I say, you know when one of your friends falls in love, you know, and they are just infatuated with the person, but everybody else can see that that relationship isn't going to work. Like, it's, it's, you're going down a dead-end path. This thing, this relationship, you guys are not right for each other. Then I say, but we say love is blind. So I tell them, don't love your product. Like, don't fall in love with your ideas. Like, your it doesn't matter how much you love them. Like, that won't make them, uh, that won't make other people love them, right? That's just you, like, in your own delusions or illusions, you know, falling in love, infatuated with them. What you need to do is take off the blinders, right? And look at other people's reactions to what you have. Because what you need for a business, we're talking a business. If you're doing an, an art project or you know a personal project, you can fall in love with that. You can be you know eccentric and go and spend all your time doing that. It doesn't matter if anybody else cares about it. But in business, somebody else has to love what you're doing. So in order for it to be real, so you have to make your customers fall in love with your product. That's the answer, right? So if you are going to them, and a lot of times, you know, I want you to go out and see if they're in love with your product. If they like your product, honestly, I tell them, if all your customers say, oh, I really like this, and then walk away, uh, you're doomed. Like, you're dead. Like, <laughs> nobody buys a product they like. Nobody spends time with a product they like. There are too many great products out there. We're always going to gravitate towards the very best one. So they have to be absolutely infatuated with your product. That's what you want to see. It doesn't matter about your own thinking. It matters about what's in their head. Let's get into the book, Surviving a Startup. As I mentioned, it seems like it's like the Bible. And it, any book feels like a kind of an entrepreneurial effort into itself, right? It's kind of like starting a little business and putting it out. So curious what inspired the, this, this book for now. And you know, tell us a little bit about what it's all about. So what inspired this book was all the pain I went through and all the pain all the entrepreneurs I know have gone through. You know, we make it seem so easy to be an entrepreneur. Uh, we idolize Elon Musk and all these, you know, entrepreneurs out there. Uh, but, you know, it's not easy. It's really hard. And there's a lot of practical things entrepreneurs need to know at the beginning that can save them a, a lot of the heartache, especially that I went through personally, <laughs> that everybody I know uh, seems to go through. So I broke the book up into sections, really, and I, in different sections, I focus on different things, whether it's marketing, whether it's you know, product development, whether it's raising capital and all the different uh, things that I learned, the psychology of the people in the space, like how investors think. And I'll go back to design since this is a design show. I'll focus on some of those elements. But you know, one thing is when you go out to investors. Investors, you know, they like to think they're analytical. They like to think, you know, they went to Harvard, they got their MBA, and they're, you know, they're only going to judge by the facts, but they are emotional. They are human beings, right? At first and foremost, they will, almost all investors end up making an emotional decision. You know, uh, then they're, then they rationalize it with <laughs> all the numbers or whatever else they need to put behind it, but it's emotional. And I tell them, when you're going to pitch investors, when you're going to present to them, think of everything you put in front of them and design it, right? Design it so that it gets a strong emotional reaction. So honestly, when I open up an investor deck or when a startup sends me their URL and I go to their website, if it's ugly, if it doesn't grab me right away, like 
switch channels. Like I have enough incoming stuff. Like, you know, all investors have thousands of things, you know, people wanting their time. So literally, we all judge a book by its cover, right? So you've got to design a beautiful cover and you've got to design a beautiful way to introduce people to this. This isn't just investors. These are your customers too, right? And I figure if an entrepreneur can't design a great website or and a great investor deck and a great, you know, what all the different materials of video that they might send me, then they're, how are they going to build a great product? Like <laughs> literally even B2B products today are pretty sexy. Like yeah, they are yeah. pretty beautiful. There used to be a day when they could be clunky and ugly. Those days are long gone. Yep. So the bar is really, really high. Mm-hmm. So my impression is like, you spend as much, you know, first of all, get your messaging down, get, you know, get, understand uh, how to, the flow and, and, and what you need to convey to your customers, how you want them to think. But at the same time, when you get that down, then make it beautiful, make it, make it delight them, make it, you know, suck them in. And the more media you can put around it, you know, people are lazy. Like I tell entrepreneurs, if you want to see what a great pitch for even a, a tech startup should be, you know, go to the top pitches on Kickstarter or Indiegogo and watch their videos, right? They're totally compelling because people don't want to like work <laughs> to, to get the information. They want to be entertained. It doesn't matter what it is. They want to be entertained. So design is important at all levels from the very beginning in terms of reaching out to your very initial customers and your very, you know, customers are the exact same way. Like if you want to get traction with them, you've got to get their attention in the most easy, basic uh, make it visual. I tell people, don't write a lot of words. None of us like to read these days. Like, like I have like whole sections on how to design your investor deck. And I'm like, put as few words as possible on each page, especially if you're pitching it. Like if you'll be in the room, there are like two types of investor decks. Like there's one that you send them to read and there you can put some words you need to because you're not in the room. Right. Or, uh, but you want, you know, but put the minimum so that they can flip through it quickly because you'd be surprised how people quickly people flip through things. Remember, your investor deck is only designed to get you in the room with them. And then when you're in the room, literally try to keep it to like five words or so per per slide. Like, and each slide should embody one a beautiful concept like that you want to convey to them as visually as possible. So that when they look at it in the first five seconds, they kind of get it. And then the rest is you. They're focused on you and what you have to say. Yeah, love that. I, I want to move to audience questions. Uh, looks like we have one from Paul who wants to ask. All right, Paul, you're on. Hi, I'm Paul from Uganda. And I just had um, a question, but I think Steve already answered it, but I'll ask anyway. So I'm um, currently in the world. A problem that I think we have is people not being quite open-minded when they're doing things. And it's making me think of entrepreneurs. So I'm just thinking, do you think as a designer, you're automatically more open-minded to things because you're trying to come up with new ideas and this leads to your success as an entrepreneur because you're trying to mix two things, which is being a designer and an entrepreneur. So my question straightforward is, do you think being a designer helps you automatically be open, more open-minded leading to your success as an entrepreneur? Thank you. I think being a designer uh, gives me... Uh, a certain perspective that other entrepreneurs may not have. Whether it necessarily makes me open-minded, I'm not sure. So, you know, all of us have our filters on, 
you know, whether you've gone to design school, whether you've gone to business school, whether you're an engineer, you have the things that you value, the things that you uh, think about, your own life experiences. And uh, a lot of times you won't see what you don't want to see. So uh, people, uh, this is true of all human beings. So I, I'll put it this way. A lot of entrepreneurs I know who went to business school or who studied engineering are really open-minded. Like they may happen to be an engineer, but they just are interested in everything. They are curious people. They like new ideas. They embrace things. Those type of people are primed for success. I One of the fundamental things I look for in an entrepreneur is, uh, are you curious, right? Are you curious about the world? Do you ask questions? Do you challenge things? I think for uh, a lot of designers, that's true, but for not all designers are that way. Some actually live in their own design bubble, uh, you know, as Sarah was talking about, you know, these designers, like they have their own like mythology they're telling themselves and they think they're open-minded, but they aren't necessarily open-minded. So open-mindedness uh, doesn't uh, necessarily come from what college degree you have. I think it's more rooted in your background, in your personality, uh, in the people you associate with and how they influence you. Yeah. And I, I would just add to the curiosity. I think a big piece of it is seeing connections that aren't obvious between disciplines that um, wouldn't otherwise be connected. It's you know, being curious, but then also looking for macro trends and connections, you know, across issues, across genres, across disciplines, and that it's a practice, right? I think as much as we want to think that it's innate that some of us wake up and are curious, I think that we have to cultivate our own curiosity, especially when things are challenging or when we're busy, or I think in this past year, everyone has faced their own sorts of challenges and, you know, developing practices around keeping your mindset open and sharp and curious and fresh is, you know, something that I think everyone has had to, whether or not they've thought of it this way, has had to be more deliberate about as we've stayed home and been on Zoom and have just been exposed to less over the natural course of a day. Sarah actually makes a really good point. And I cover this in my book on innovation, Make Elephants Fly. It is Interdisciplinary thinking is so important these days because a lot of the innovations we see out there happen at the intersection of disciplines. So design is one discipline, right? And then there are other disciplines out there uh, that you can study, psychology, uh, sociology, uh, you know, different forms of technology, um, all of these different things, economics. Now, when you, if you are the curious person, it means that you're going out and actually reading up on these, engaging with other people who are in these fields, getting them together and see, and that helps you make these connections. That is the, uh, one of the critical things that can actually open up innovation and allow you to actually be more successful. Okay, we have another question from the audience from Paige. Curious what the top three reasons for the 90% failure are. And we did cover some of that with the, you know, doing it alone. So then the second part of this question is, how do you find those people, you know, to actually work with you on your business? Why do 90% of startups fail? It's a great question. And first of all, the failure rate is because a lot of people just aren't committed, 
Like they will try something, they'll think it's going to be easy. They hit a first roadblock, boom. <laughs> they, they, you know, they, they give up. A lot of people switch a lot of times. There's a million reasons startups fail. The, actually, the number one reason is they never find a product market fit. I mean, they build something that customers just don't care about. Like the world does not care about what they're building. That's the number one reason. But it could be a co-founder leaving. It could be money troubles. It could be, a, you know, whole, you know, they could have everything right and then things just implode. They could get sick. So a lot of reasons. For her second question, I get asked this question all the time. I'm an entrepreneur. How do I find the right people? The right people. I know the right people are so important, but like actually connecting with them, like where are they? Like, I don't know anybody who's technical. I don't know, you know, some business wizard or sales wizard, you know, <laughs> I'm a designer. Like I know design, but I, I want to do this startup. I tell entrepreneurs that if it were easy, like everybody would do it. It's everything about being an entrepreneur is hard. Like, and honestly, as an investor, you know, we look at the team they form first because that's the first challenge they have. If you can't go out there and meet this challenge of getting great people onto your team and people are the essence, like let's face it, at the end of the day, it's not money, it's not your idea, it's the people. Because if you get a great group of people, they can start off with the wrong idea, eventually they're going to figure it out and then they're going to iterate and they're going to try other things. And if they're really committed and they stick together, you know, they will have some level of success. Will they be like the next Mark Zuckerberg? Well, we hope not. No. <laughs> but they will hit, you know, some level of success. So I tell them, this is your challenge. Now, how do you do it? Well, you don't do it by sitting at home. <laughs> like if you want to find great co-founders out there, you're, you know, unless you're on your computer and really good at networking, like there are ways to do it sitting at home. I will reverse that. You could actually do it sitting at home. You, you know, like a good forum right now is Clubhouse. Like if you go on Clubhouse, you can chat with a lot of people. You can waste a lot of time on Clubhouse. I will tell you, I've done it. Um, it's really a time suck, but you can also meet people. And connect with people as the world opens back up and people start meeting face to face again after the COVID thing. You can go out into the world and meet, meeting. There's nothing like meeting people face to face. Uh, you know, we are human beings. This is what this is how we form connections, which are so important. So go into the world. Now, this is the advice I give you. If you don't know any engineers and, and you're a designer. Well, don't go to all the design meetups in your area. Don't go all to the art ex exhibitions and all the other stuff where all the other designers are. You're going to meet designers there, right? <laughs> if you want to meet engineers, go to the Python meetup group. <laughs> go to the Node.js meetup group. I will tell you, you will probably be the only designer there. And you will probably understand absolutely nothing. But you will be surrounded by the people you want to meet. And if you just like start chatting with them because they're there to talk and meet people, right? And you're chatting with them and you're talking and you're asking them intelligent questions and you're, then you're telling them what you want to do. You may make a relationship where suddenly you know a bunch of engineers and maybe one of them wants to join you. Same with marketing or business, you know, go to those things that you never go to. And that's how you meet the people, whether it's online or offline. I do think it's also important for perspective to separate entrepreneurship from founding a startup, that an entrepreneur could be considered anyone who is starting a new venture. And I think this 90% of startups fail, it makes sense. Most people who try to found a billion dollar company are not going to succeed because we live on a finite planet that can only even sustain so many billion dollar companies at once. 
But I think it's worth giving that dose of optimism to everyone else who may be looking at ventures of different sizes or just at the beginning of contemplating their journey that 20, it's only 20% of new businesses overall that fail in the first year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And I think 65 fail by the 10-year mark. But it's not this you know, slaughterhouse that sometimes that statistic can make it out to be that there are a lot of different sizes of ventures. And the odds of success are not as bleak as that looking at the startup segment makes it out to be. And um, it's worth pointing out, too, that the odds of success go up with each subsequent firm you found. We had one uh, Mass Art alum who has a business come on and was talking about it. And he said he founded it to fail, that he thought he was like, all right, if I know that everyone's first business fails, I'm just going to start something and get it, oh, get my failure over with so that my next thing can work. And seven years later, he's you know at 10 employees and just consistently growing. So it's this failure is taking a long time. But I think Having that context is helpful. And then to the network building point, I think it's important to have a practice there too, that if you're waiting until you need something to network, it's too late because people will sense that you're just looking for something, that there's sometimes a desperation when there's something you need. Um, I think a good way to look at it or what I try to push my students and grads to do is meet three interesting people outside of your orbit every month. Just three interesting people who do things you don't know about. And if you do that consistently over time, you're going to have a really interesting and diverse network. And you never know when those serendipitous moments and connections will happen. But it's really something you have to cultivate over time. You can't build a strong network in two months while you're trying to launch a big idea. Sarah, those are excellent points. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you both for this awesome conversation. I could talk about entrepreneurship all day. And so nice to have you two experts here. And thank you, Steve, so much for uh, being part of this and sharing your wisdom across all of your experience. And I'm so excited to read the book myself because like I said, I'm surviving this 12-year startup and I, I still, it's a constant learning and practice. So I'm always looking for thought leadership and tips on, on how to make this all work. So thank you. Listeners, to check out Steve's work, visit founderspace.com. And like we said, check out the book, Surviving a Startup. Take a quick break, and then we're going to return for our weekly dose of good design. Okay, it's my favorite time of the week. Every week, we share our weekly dose of good design. These are examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us recently. I'll go first. This week, I'm very excited about a show on Netflix called Love, Death, and Robots. And that's actually represented by emoji form. So it's the heart, skull and crossbones, and then the robot emoji. That's the title of the show. It's an animated anthology. So they're, the first season was 18 episodes. And the second season just came out and it's eight episodes. Each one is from a different storyteller and a different animation studio. So no two are alike. And they're like anywhere between 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes tops. So they're fun, just like quick animated they're so beautiful to watch. The animation is gorgeous. And each one, like I said, is very different. Uh, you could probably guess from the robot in the title that they do tend towards like science fiction and fantasy. So there's one about a community of farmers that has to like pilot these mechanized suits to defend their farm from these like insect monsters. Uh, there's werewolves, there's space travel, there's aliens. I will say it's definitely a show for adults only. So don't be showing us to the kids anytime soon. Or the second season kicks off with a, a short story about a vacuum bot that turns on its owner. 
So I thought that was pretty great. So there's some humor, but there's also a lot of like thinking sort of like in a black mirror kind of way about the future of humanity. So anyway, check out Love, Death and Robots on Netflix if you're into science fiction. Okay, that was mine. Sarah, what are you excited about this week? Before we uh, started the show, we were talking about um, our quarantine situations over the past year. And as someone who has been uh, sharing a small space with a you know a one year old and a four year old as well, <laughs> actually, um, it's I've been thinking a lot about designing spaces um, that are engaging for kids, but don't feel like the adults are being forced to move into a preschool center. So I wanted to highlight um, because I would not pass up the opportunity, the chance to spotlight one of the alums who's come out of the first cohort of our incubator at MassArt. So Natalie Maybach is a, um, a MassArt alum and already had a really strong reputation as a fine artist. Uh, she does these three-dimensional sculptures that are all based on data interpretations and has a TED Talk that um, has been really widely viewed. So she came into you know, designing a product that she could produce at scale and for a different consumer from this point of view of not just having to switch from the artist mindset to the designer mindset, but also simultaneously um, sort of preserve her personal brand as an established fine artist. And she's um, created this brand, Spiders and Birds, and it's these really gorgeous woven lamps that have notes of some of her fine art aesthetic, but at the same time, they're um, these transformable lamps that come with a kit that almost looks like a toy. There are multiple components that you can use to reassemble and disassemble this lamp um, in different configurations for a space. It can transform from a tabletop lamp to a pendant lamp. Um, it can be positioned on its side. There, It's this really cool, fun, transformable product that feels youthful and playful but it also it feels elevated and you know not at all like um sort of the cheap throwaway toys that we usually associate with uh, children's spaces uh i should say too she's just opened a showroom in the soa district of boston and over on the west coast um her lamps are now available at the newly reopened mocha stores in los angeles very cool. All right, we'll definitely post the link. That sounds amazing. Thank you. Okay, Steve, finish us off for the weekly dose. I've been helping out a startup called All Bad Cards. And what they did is actually it's just one guy who on his spare time has coded this game that is essentially Cards Against Humanity. So if you are familiar with Cards Against Humanity, that's only a card game. It's not online. So he actually, he's an engineer, but he has a really good design sense, and he managed to uh, bring an equivalent game online, and I'm a gamer, as all of you know, and so, uh, you know, I was playing it, it's really fun, and it also allows people to create their own custom cards, so everybody can create, you know, like if you're at a college, a specific college, you can create a deck of cards for your college. If you're in a little in-group, you can create cards for your in-group. Really fun. And then he iterated and created a whole bunch of other games. So I've been kind of uh, mentoring him along, and I think that thing has potential. That's cool. That's very cool. I'll definitely check that out. What a fun game. Thank you both for sharing those that's so great yeah we'll post links for those that's our show thank you to sarah hartman and steve hoffman for joining us and for just an awesome conversation we'll post links to the resources we discussed on our episode page so you can visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast 
And to our live audience, thank you for joining us. And you can find our podcast, Design is Everywhere, anywhere you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and our new episodes drop every Thursday morning. You can become a member on our website and that's how you can attend these member-only live shows. So visit designmuseumeverywhere.org, become a member and be part of the conversation. As always, you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. Plus, we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom and editing support by Emily Roberts and additional research by Tanya Chabla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for listening and we'll talk next week.